Den amerikanska författaren och romandebutanten Lisa Halliday, hon bor numera i Milano. Och från Milano kom hon den 22 oktober för att möta Hans Ola Bränner och han hade tagit sig från Oslo till scenen under fontänen. Vilket samtal det blev. Lyssna och njut. We were here to talk about this novel, uh, Asymmetry. Did you ever consider a long poetic title to the novel? No. No. <laughs> <laughs> the title did come at the end, though, which is which is not how I'm working on the new, the next novel. The title came first, um, but this title came very late. And then it, it, it just seemed to me so obvious i thought how could i not yeah. have known what the title was all along but i didn't i was sure you did because it it it's uh, it functions on so many levels so mm. that was that was luck that you get very lucky yes <laughs> very under lucky. what circumstances did you did it come to you then well f- i was saying to a friend that i had finished the book e- everything else about the book and i didn't know what to call it and i knew Again, it's so strange because it seems so obvious now, but I knew that I wanted these two stories together. I wrote them, well, for those of you who don't know, the book is in two long parts followed by a a short coda. And the two parts seem not to have very much to do with one another, but they do have a lot to do with one another. And some people have speculated that I wrote one and then I wrote the other and then I stuck them together and called the called them a novel but that's not that's not how it happened. I wrote them more or less simultaneously and this is why throughout the book there are so many echoes, so many resonances, details that um seem to speak to each other from the two parts of the book. So it was always one one book to my mind. It is very much um an indivisible novel. And so a friend was saying to me, "Well, what is it about?" and i said it's about asymmetry and he said <laughs> <laughs> so i know it sounds very dumb but uh, that's that's how the title came about <laughs> but that you had with you from the start the feeling that it was going to yes. have to do with asymmetry yes i always wanted these two stories to sit alongside each other in fact originally the the So in the first part of the book there's a young woman named Alice who wants very much to become a writer and she has a relationship with a much older very famous novelist and this is both an education for her and also a source of much um anxiety. There's a term that was coined by the American critic Harold Bloom who just passed away, the anxiety of influence. It's it's the anxiety that you feel because artists who've come before you have already said everything that you want to say they've already said it more beautifully than you think you can say it i'm i'm paraphrasing i'm sure harold bloom would probably take issue with the way i've described it but this is how i've understood it and so alice feels an enormous anxiety of influence because she's having this relationship with someone who's accomplished so so much beyond what she thinks she can at the same time she lives in her own world her own generation is experiencing the iraq war she's she's in her 20s she's growing up in new york uh during the early years of the iraq war and she does find a way to become a writer in her own 
time. In the second part of the book, we have a character named Amar, who is an Iraqi-American man, an economist. He's trapped in Heathrow, where he's been detained on his way to visit his brother in Kurdistan. And he seems very different from Alice, but we learn that maybe they have more in common than, than it in initially seems. These two characters, in very early drafts of the book, they knew each other. They were talking to each other. They had conversations. They were running into each other on street corners. And it was terrible. <laughs> it, was, it, it wasn't what I wanted to be doing. It felt very much like fiction. It felt too false to me. So that's how you started? That's how I started. Trying to make this complete... One story. One story. It is one story, but it, it has parts now, very distinguishable parts, whereas initially it was one more conventional novelistic story. And, and but one could argue that I'm now something completely different in a way, yes. unless you have the feeling for the subtle things. You have to, to, to be interested in the subtle things. And of course... yes. Some no, it's true. You have to s you have to be interested in them in order to feel the sense of continuity until you get to the end and learn how they might be connected mm. more literally. The anxiety of influence, you could easily have that without knowing uh, a writer at all, of course. Yeah, oh, yes, yeah, of course. And in fact, I think that's how Harold Bloom initially meant it. <laughs> mm. But for someone like Alice, who spends time talking to someone who has achieved so much, as Ezra Blazer, the author in the book, does, has, it, it's heightened. It's even more intense for her, mm. I think. <laughs> the opening scene in which sh uh, she sits there trying to... Uh, read a book, mm -hmm. not really mm -hmm. uh, getting there. Mm -hmm. uh, she's bored, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, and he comes, This uh, he's a lot older, this man, as you said. Um, and after the Me Too m movement, so to speak, we see this in a different light, possibly. Mm -hmm. But you, you, you wrote this before Me Too ever happened. <coughs> I did, yes, long before, because it took me a long time to write it. I was also doing other How things. How long did it take you? From the time I decided on this structure, the two parts, it took about five years. I was also doing a lot of editing, translating, ghostwriting to pay the bills. And I hope the next novel won't take so long. Mm. But uh, just to finish that, because th the years you worked for the Wiley Literary Agency, among other things, mm -hmm. and you were a part of the literary world. But it was uh, all of that time, it was really about getting to, to, to write a novel. I, I started working for the Wiley Agency immediately after I graduated from college and I didn't know what I wanted to be. I, I loved writing but I never had the courage to try to do it myself professionally. So I got this job at, at a literary agency. It is one of the most esteemed agencies in the world. It's very, very powerful and for good reason. They represent many of the best writers we have and they're very good at what they do. And the boss, Andrew Wiley, often described as merciless, but he's probably pretty nice too. Uh, <laughs> most he's people very are. good at what he does. Yeah. <laughs> he's also, he's also, he also can be very, very charming, dynamic, extremely funny. He was paternal with me, which I appreciated. I enjoyed working with him very much. And it was through the Wiley Agency that I met many real real writers and they became friends and I saw what what goes into writing I saw that it is a job you have to show up you have to do it it's not I think many people have an idea of it that it's very magical that you are always inspired when you sit down to write and it just isn't true it's a job and it can be very dreary and so and so learning from 
from real, real writers that it can be hard. It makes you realize that if it's hard for you too, maybe actually you're doing something right. Maybe you're on the right track. And so I met um, uh, many wonderful people who remain friends. I also met my husband because he also worked for this agency. And, um, and yet it wasn't until very late in my time at the agency that I started writing myself. I started getting up very early to write. I read that that was what Toni Morrison did. <laughs> so I thought, well, I should do that. And um, I, I worked between sort of 5 and 7 a.m. and then I would go to work. And I finally uh, decided to take the leap and leave the agency. Uh, I was almost 30 when I did that. And it was very scary, in part because I liked the work. I liked being there. But also I was making a salary. I had health insurance, which perhaps you know in America is very useful. And I, I, I didn't know if what I was doing was a, a big mistake. And I spent many years working on this novel, but also translating, editing. I did a lot of ghost writing, other people's books, uh, memoirs for other people. And finally I finished this. And... Um, and we got onto that because I was saying it took a long time <laughs> uh, to write it. And um, I can't remember how we got onto well, it. Well, I think it was something about Me Too. <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Me Too was not uh, Me Too. So Me Too did not yet exist in this articulated way, this very prominent way that it has for the last couple of years. And, and it, it came to the fore just before the book came out, and my publisher said, you, you have to realize people are going to read the book through this lens. And I was a little bit nervous, but also it seems to me very clear that, to me, this is not a Me Too relationship in this book. These two people want to have this relationship. He is much older. He is very successful. Many people would see him as having all of the power. But to me, the power fluctuates between these two people, Alice has her own powers. She's young and she's healthy, yeah. and she has her life ahead of her. She, w I think we get the sense that she's an intelligent person, she's ambitious, and they help each other. So certainly he gives her a kind of an education, but she also helps him, and she gives him a kind of education as to what it's like to be in your 20s in 2003, 2004. And... Certainly towards the end of the first section, we have a real sense of, of the power shifting. And this is what relationships are like. Many of them are nuanced. Many of them are complicated. They don't slot easily into categories. I do not mean in any way to judge the Me Too movement because I think it is very important. I don't know what the results of it will be. I think we're still a ways away from seeing what the, what the lasting effects are. But in my book, the relationship is not, to my mind, a Me Too relationship. But I've said this before, I think it's really exciting, actually, that we can't help but read a book through the lens of the current moment. So maybe if I'm so lucky to have people reading this book 20 years from now, there will be a new cultural moment that will be in people's minds as they're reading the book. That's how they'll see it then. And this is how it is for all books. And this is what we love about literature. It's, it has a capacity to change its meaning over time, depending on when you read it, where you read it, and what your own individual story is.
Mm -hmm. But with the lens that you too then probably have now, do you see her any differently uh, than you did when you, you, you wrote the character? I don't, I don't really. I don't actually... I, because I took so long with the book, I went over it and over it and over it. The characters, the scenes, the details are all very settled in my mind. Mm. They are exactly what I wanted them to be. I feel very lucky that that there's nothing I would want to change. Mm. And <clears throat> when when people ask me for advice about writing, I, I say, take your time. Make it what you really want it to be so that if people do criticize you, you can at least tell yourself, it's what I wanted to do. I did what I wanted to do. Mm. There's nothing I would like to change. If this person doesn't like it, at least I, at least I do. I did what I set out to do. So I don't think the Me Too movement has changed how I see these characters. If anything, the book contributes to my sense of the Me Too movement as still very young. I think that we, we will have to find a way to do what we're doing to bring these relationships um, to reckon with them in a way that does account for the nuance of human behaviors. We're never going to erase bad feeling in the world. There, there's no legislation that can take away someone being offended. There's no legislation that is going to erase the asymmetries that we have between us. I mean, no, no relationship, even if the two people are of equal age, is precisely asymmetrical. And that is why we are excited about being with people. They cause friction. We, we like being different from people. That's how we learn. And, and so how do we navigate those relationships? How do we make sure no one is, is really taken advantage of or hmm. abused? Is it fair to say that well, they have a common ground when it comes to, to their shared sense of humor. And that kind of neutralizes possibly the inequalities in a way. Yes, they have a lot of things in common. The characters in the book, they, Ezra and Alice, they have a sense of humor. They, they are very playful. That's part of it. They love baseball. They love music. They love books, of course. And a sense of humor is, is essential. It's essential. It's a kind of survival mode and I appreciated so much that in the introduction there was this reference to being deadly serious as well as humorous and this is very important to me. Life is very serious but there are also many things that are very funny and that's how we that's how we go on in life when we are most miserable. We, we try to find the humor in it and those are the people I love in my own history, the people who are able to find a way to laugh and to not be so self-serious. It's very important, I think, not to take yourself too seriously. <laughs> uh, if we still talk about the first part, it's, uh, the, the, the male main character, he's not uh, an average writer, he's, he's the best. <laughs> uh, and he needed to be the best, I guess, in order to make this story function in the way it does. Or what would you say? Yes, I... I think perhaps many people here have heard that I knew Philip Roth. Um, he was a very dear friend of mine, and many people have acknowledged that there are similarities between the character Ezra Blazer and Philip Roth. I say this because it is directly relevant to your question. I deliberately invited people to consider uh, the figure of Philip Roth because he was such a big figure in in the universe of literature. Many people thought he was one of our very, very best writers. 
many people thought differently. Um, but he, he, was, uh, he was undeniably a towering figure. And if, if Alice is having her relationship with someone who is just mediocre, who many people have never heard of, then the anxiety of influence is not so great. So to dramatize the relationship in the book, I made, I made as clear as I could that this writer, Ezra Blazer, was really one of the, one of the biggest names in literature that, that you could hear. At the same time, it is very much a novel. It's not a memoir of my own story uh, with anyone. It's, it's really a compilation of many different memories, but also so much imagination, so many details that I sought out um, from experiences of other people, things I read about on the internet. It's, it's not, it doesn't fall into the trope of autofiction, as some people have, have surmised. <laughs> mm. We know this in Scandinavia, you know, the difference between life and literature. So we were <laughs> yeah, so I don't, I'm wasting my time. Yeah. <laughs> but still, Philip Roth read the novel before it was published. He did, yes, yes, he did. And, and he saw it. it published, which was wonderful because he, he, he died, I think, five month, five, five and a half months after it was published. And, it, and I am so glad now and relieved indeed that he was alive to see it published. He was very happy for me. He, he found it very funny. You know, he, may, he would make jokes about, um, about people assuming that certain things that are in the book are, are actual, are from real life, similarities between him and this character. But mostly he was just very, very happy. And it was wonderful to be able to talk to someone like him about the pleasures of being published, but also, of course, about the anxieties of it, about indiscreet questions that journalists would ask. <laughs> and um, he said at one point, he said, well, you put one foot in the trap. And I understood, he, and he, he didn't say it judgmentally or accusingly, he said it very sympathetically, because, of course, he'd, he'd been through this in his own lifetime with books like Portnoy's Complaint. I, don't, I want to make clear that I've only published one novel. I'm not putting myself on the level of someone like Philip Roth, but it, but it was very nice to hear from someone who was a good friend. I understand. It's not always wonderful. There are difficult aspects to this. Hmm. Uh, is this a good time to, to read a little segment from the book? Okay. Uh, I'll read a little bit from the first section. Alice and Ezra have known each other for some time, I think about a year by now. And they've never actually discussed yet that Alice would like to be a writer. So in this scene, they are going out for a walk. And Ezra has recently had a number of uh, physical ailments. He's been to lots of doctors. He's had trouble with his back. He's had an operation on his back. He's also had a defibrillator put in, uh, one of those machines that shocks your heart if it, if it stops working properly. And he's also just finished another novel and is about to start, has just started a, a new novel. So he and Alice go out for a walk in his neighborhood and um, they're accompanied by a nurse who is helping him move around. While the nurse took a call on her phone, Alice and Ezra sat on the bench where they'd met. They rested quietly for a moment until Ezra said something about the plane trees that Alice didn't hear for her thoughts about where she'd been in her life, where she was going, and how she might get there without too much difficulty from here. 
These were considerations complicated by this maddening habit of wanting something only until she got it, at which point she wanted something else. Then a pigeon swooped in, and Ezra shooed it away with his cane. The way he did this, with a debonair little flick, reminded Alice of Fred Astaire. Sweetheart, he said, watching her eat a hot dog, this summer, why don't you take two weeks off and come out to visit me? Would you be bored? Not at all, said Alice. I'd love that. Ezra nodded. Licking mustard off her palm, Alice asked, what did your agent say about your book? Ezra, I, I don't know what to say. It's genius. It's a masterpiece. I mean, Jesus Christ, it's good. Every word, every single fucking word is spelled correctly, said Alice. Ezra blew his nose, is spelled correctly. When is he going to submit it? He's going to wait until the fall, said Ezra. Have you finished? I'm up to page 163, said Alice. And? I like it. What? What? What's that tone? Well, who's speaking, said Alice. Who's telling the story? What do you mean, said Ezra. The narrator's telling the story. I know, but... Finish it first, said Ezra. Then we can talk about point of view. Anything else? The girl in the bagel shop. Who talks like that these days? So carefully, so formally. You do, said Ezra. I know, but I'm... What? Special? Alice raised her eyebrows at him, but kept chewing. Alice, he said tenderly a moment later, I know what you're up to. What? I know what you do when you're alone. What? You're writing, aren't you? Alice shrugged. A little. Do you write about this? About us? No. Is that true? Alice shook her head hopelessly. It's impossible. Ezra nodded. Then what do you write about? Other people? People more interesting than I am? Alice laughed softly, lifting her chin toward the street. Muslim hot dog sellers? Ezra looked skeptical. Do you write about your father? No. You should. It's a gift. I know, but writing about myself doesn't seem important enough. As opposed to? War, said Alice. Dictatorships, world affairs. Forget about world affairs, said Ezra. World affairs can take care of themselves. They're not doing a very good job of it, said Alice. A woman from Ezra's building came down the path wearing a gore 2000 cap and power walking a shih tzu. Hello, Ezra said as she passed. Hello, Chaucer, he added to the dog. For her part, Alice was starting to consider really rather seriously whether a former choir girl from Massachusetts might be capable of conjuring the consciousness of a Muslim man. When Ezra turned back to her and said, don't worry about importance. Importance comes from doing it well. Just remember what Chekhov said. If there's a gun hanging on the wall in the first chapter, in a later chapter, it must go off. Alice wiped her hands and stood to throw her napkin away. If there's a defibrillator hanging on the wall in the first chapter, in a later chapter, must it go off? <laughs> Is the, the, the average reader of this book supposed to have... Uh, understood that she is an aspiring writer at this time, you think? I think so. I think so. We're on, this is page 69. We've had, so we've had quite a few clues. <laughs> For how long time do you think that he has had some clues about it? Ezra? Yes. I think Ezra knew from page 
one. <laughs> I think he. I think he even says very early on. Uh, he says, "I thought you wanted to be a writer." He sees her reading a book that he doesn't think is very good, and he says, "I thought you wanted to be a writer." And at that point, she hadn't even said that yet. Mm. So he's astute. <laughs> yeah. So that's kind of the contract, and in a way, and and, and getting to know him is kind of a shortcut to for her talking about what she gets out of it into that world into the knowledge into uh, reading the right books uh, yes uh, so to speak i think so i mean she she already works at a very established a very prestigious publishing house we know that by now but certainly to be on on intimate terms with someone like ezra blazer is to have an education not just in literature but as we were saying in music in baseball in culture in a way, it's a kind of window onto what's come before Alice's own life. She learns about um, literature related to the Holocaust. He, he recommends books for her to read about, about World War II, about the Holocaust. And this sort of slowly but surely takes us to the second part of the book, which of course is about Alice's own generations war, the war that is happening in Alice's own lifetime, which is the Iraq war. Mm. And, and the frame uh, around that story uh, is uh, the situation in which uh, the character Amar uh, is detained at the Heathrow yes. uh, airport. And that works very well, of course. It's, <laughs> it's, it's intriguing, it's, uh, it's exciting to see how it goes, and we won't reveal it, of course. But, mm -hmm. but still, uh, w how did you come up with that frame story? Well, uh, I'm going to undermine my previous statement about this not being autofiction because I was detained at Heathrow Airport. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I'll explain very quickly. Uh, my, my now husband is British, and at the time I was living in New York, but I was visiting him frequently in London. And I would go for two weeks or a month or even two months, and I would sublet my apartment in New York so that I could do this. And I had been doing this for long enough that they became suspicious that I was trying to move there secretly without going through the proper channels, which I was not. But uh, they detained me overnight and eventually let me through at three in the morning. And they said, you can stay for this trip, but you can't come back until you've gotten a, a visa. And about a year after that, my husband and I decided to get married to solve this problem, but also because we love each other. <laughs> and, um, and so I, d I did get two things out of this experience, which, which was my wonderful marriage and also the premise for the second part of the book. I want to emphasize that in my case, it was harrowing for a few hours and I was nervous that they were going to send me back. It's not, it's not pleasant to be interrogated and detained in a room, but it, I am sure that it was not nearly as harrowing as it is for many, many other people who do not have the same privileges, you might say, that I have. My problem was more or less easily solved. For someone like Amar, who, as I said, is Iraqi-American. He has family in Iraq still. Uh, he's, he grew up in America, but he has an Iraqi passport. He has an American passport. This alone is cause for suspicion. He has a name that arouses suspicion. There are presumptions made about his religion. He, he is Muslim. Um, and we sense that, although it's never explained to us, we sense that it's for these reasons that he is being detained. And... 
I, of course, have not had to deal with that in my life. It was important to me to try to use this jumping off point that I had, this, this experience that I had had, to, to imagine as fully as I could what it would be like for someone like this character, Amar. Mm. And he's going to stay in, in London for a couple of days only on his uh, way yes. uh, to Istanbul. Um, and to see his brother in, in Kurdistan. Mm-hmm. Um, but but the fact that he has two passports, there's this um, backstory or, or this story about how, how he's born, actually. That's mm-hmm. very, very fascinating. Could you tell how you come up with that? Because that was... Yes. He, uh, Amar's parents are from Baghdad and his brother was born, in, his older brother was born in Baghdad. Amar's mother is pregnant with Amar when his parents decide to emigrate to the United States. His father is a doctor and has the opportunity to, to work as a doctor in the, U- in the US. My understanding is that at that time, this was very common, uh, the US was a bit more welcoming than it is right now. And so the idea is that they were going to emigrate before Amar was born. But in fact, his mother goes into labor early on the plane, and he's born high above Cape Cod. <laughs> and, um, and, and so there's a bit of uncertainty about what kind of passport he should get, what nationality he should get. And it's finally determined that he should have both uh, an American passport, because he was born in American airspace, but also an Iraqi one, because the plane they were flying was an Iraqi plane. And this, this I actually did a lot of research about this. It was very important to me that this be credible. And I, I also liked the idea because it sets up a sense of Amar as someone who has a foot in both countries. He's raised in the US, but he feels a very strong attachment to his Iraqi background. His brother moves back to Iraq because he actually prefers it there. And Amar is an intelligent person. He, as I said, he's an economist, and he has a keen sense of his responsibility as a civilian in the world. Uh, he has a, a sense of himself as someone who perhaps owes something to his background, to his, to his parents' native country. And so there's always this sense in the second part of the book of him being stranded between two nationalities, two countries, not knowing where his... Um, loyalty should be. Mm. And then we, we become part of this Kafkaesque uh, situation, of course, at the, the airport, uh, where it's also possible to understand the people who, who, who try to understand what kind of situation he is in. And they're, they're kind of human too, actually. It's really important to me that in a novel there aren't um, flat villains because they're not interesting. So if you think about to sort of take a step back and give another example, if you think about an argument between two people in a movie or in a book or in a television show, you identify with it when both people are right in a way. They're most realistic when, when you can understand both sides of the argument. That's what feels real. That's what resonates with us. And so throughout the book, I tried not to have anyone be a cardboard cutouts of a villain, someone we hate. I wanted Alice to be relatable. I wanted Ezra to be relatable. I wanted Amar, of course, to be relatable, but also the people interrogating him 
they have a job to do, and this is a complicated world. And sometimes we have to put up with the tedium of bureaucracy for the benefit of us all. We all have to play by the rules. So it's, again, it's never explicit why Amar has been detained. And so it leaves open the possibility that there aren't prejudices involved. <laughs> they may have something in their system that, uh, that has flagged him as being suspicious. We don't, we don't really know because it's more interesting to me to ask questions rather than to try to answer them definitively. I, I wanted these people as well to be human, to, for there to be sympathy for everyone in the book on some level. Mm. So you keep some secrets then, so to speak. And, and we're not invited into uh, Alice's head either. There's a lot we don't know about her, and that's a good thing. <laughs> yes. We have to interpret how, the, how this relationship uh, works for her in a way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Ezra also asked the question explicitly if this is kind of... Uh, yeah, if it's a difficult in, uh, situation for her then. Yes, he... More than once, he says, do you think this is good for you? And she, the first time, she says, yes. She doesn't want it to end. She, she thinks it's very good for her. And even then again, later on, he says, isn't this a little bit heartbreaking? And she says, maybe a little bit around the edges. Mm. They want to be in this. She doesn't want it to end until she wants it to end, <laughs> mm. maybe. Um, but you bring up something that's also important, which is that the first part of the book is in the third person. And that's why we don't have access to Alice's thoughts, because it's told in the third person. Very few of her thoughts are articulated. We have a sense of what she's thinking, but I wanted it to read more like a movie. I wanted it to feel more like watching a film. Whereas there's this stylistic asymmetry between the first part and the second part of the book. The second part is told in the first person. Amar is narrating it. So we actually do have access to his thoughts in a kind of explosion of consciousness. And this is very deliberate that the two parts are asymmetrical. <laughs> and one other thing, <laughs> the, the, the fact that the first part is told in the third person, this relates back to the Me Too movement, even though it, it hadn't happened, it, it is what allows the reader to make up his or her own mind about this relationship. Alice is not going to tell you what she thinks about it, except when Ezra asks her. The reader can, can decide for him or herself, is this a healthy relationship? Is it not a healthy relationship? Is it one you would be in yourself? Is it one you would never go anywhere near? And, and that's important to me as well, that, you, that, that, that writers afford readers that kind of independence and that interpretation. Yes! <laughs> that works so well. Um, and getting uh, the second part told in, in first person, getting into the head of, of Amir, mm-hmm. telling his family story. Uh, what, what kind of effort did you make to, to, to make that possible? Well... I have never been to the Middle East. I'm not, I'm not Iraqi. I'm not um, Muslim. I'm not a man. I'm not an economist. But this was what attracted me so much to the idea of writing from this perspective. In a way, it was, it was liberating because no one could identify me with this character in the superficial ways. So it, w- it, was, it felt more like throwing my voice, a bit like ventriloquism. But it was very important to me that I do it as rigorously as I could. And, and this required lots and lots of research, reading memoirs by war correspondents, memoirs by people 
who had lived in Kurdistan, um, memoirs by people who've lived in Baghdad. I studied maps, I watched documentaries. I did as much research as I could and I interrogated every single detail in the second part of the book as much as I could to make it as credible as I could because this was the, this is the concept of the book. Can we, can we do, how close can we get to imagining what it's like to be someone else? There are passages in the book that obliquely speak to this issue. We are trapped in our one personhood for all of life. <laughs> and this is why we read, because as a friend of mine said just last week, literature is here to tell us that we are not alone. And so also writing is a way of, of escaping your one self and trying to become someone else. It's a bit of a sensitive subject uh, if you think about cultural appropriation, this, this um, idea that we shouldn't try to write from the perspective of someone else. I think particularly when there are perceived differences in power between the author and the subject. I don't think writers should be limited. I think they should be allowed to write from any perspective they choose, but it has to be done with rigor and humility and every attempt possible to get it as right as you can. And then you have to be ready to be told that you've done a bad job. You have to be ready for the criticism mm. and you have to treat it as a learning experience. You, ha you, have to, you have to learn from the writing and learn from the reactions. Mm. But have, have you got any reactions like that from anyone telling you that, uh, that no. it was wrong in <laughs> any way? No, no, but I'm very I, they are welcome. That reaction is welcome. Yeah. I haven't had it. Um, and, and actually it has surprised me a little bit that I haven't because this idea of cultural appropriation is so much uh, in the news. It, maybe not here, I don't know. Um, well, yes, it is. Yes, I thought yeah. so. So... Uh, there's a wonderful essay by Zadie Smith in the latest New York Review of Books on this topic. I encourage you to read it. I haven't had, I haven't had, um, not personally, no one has come to me personally. But again, writing and reading is, we do it to learn, or at least I do. I, I do, I write in order to learn something in the deepest way I know how. And, and so to be told you can't write from a certain perspective would be like being told, I don't want you to learn about me. I don't mm. want you to try to know me. So I, 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 think, I think it's essential. I don't know what fiction is if it's not trying to imagine your way into the head of someone else. But again, it has to be done with, you, you can tell if it's not done with, with sensitivity. So I it's how it's done. Yes, because if it was a, a one-dimensional character, then it would at least be a literary problem, of course. Yes. But that would be worse than yes. depicting this uh, as a very many-faceted character. No, it wouldn't. It wouldn't work. It wouldn't be interesting. It wouldn't be. I don't think it would be entertaining. But it would also be. Uh, it would be offensive. It, it would be not what I was trying to do. It, you're, you're trying to ask a difficult question and answer it, or come as close as you can to supplying an answer without actually answering it. Mm -hmm. Because I think the best books don't answer the big questions. They just give you a lot of food for thought. So this is you, in a way, challenging yourself to try to understand, to try to develop your empathy in some way or another. It's, yes, it is. And it's also, 
exploring the, co the connection between imagination and empathy, if there is one, I think there is. And it is, um, again, trying to explore how we might be able to escape ourselves, also while acknowledging that we can't. There just is no way for me ever to know what it's like to be you. I can try, <laughs> we can spend a lot of time together, but I'm never going to know really, and, and vice versa. And this is something that it, you almost can't think about it too much because you get a little bit, you feel claustrophobic. It's <laughs> <That's> terrible, <laughs> actually. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, no. But <laughs> but <laughs> I've depressed <laughs> is you. <laughs> is it possible to escape from oneself from time to time? Uh, I think only through... I think this is why art is so important through through art. I don't want to sound too grand, but I, I think that is what art is for. It's a way of escaping ourselves and seeing things from another perspective. I, it's why it. I think it's why art artists persist. It's why art. Um, it's how it sustains us. It's why we feel a kind of urgency to keep it alive. Mm. Do we have time for? A little reading. I think we do. Well, uh, there's one that's very relevant to what we've just been discussing. So, and it's very short. So, um, okay. So, in this section, the character Amar is in Kurdistan. He's visiting his brother. He's remembering. This is before he's detained. So he's thinking back to the last time he saw his brother. He was in Kurdistan. His brother is a very accomplished piano player and wants to buy a used piano that he has seen advertised. So Amar is accompanying his brother, Sami, to visit this piano to see if Sami would like to buy it. Again, this is in uh, Suleymaniyah in Kurdistan. While my brother counted out a stack of American hundreds, I stepped over a barbell to approach the piano as if for a better look. Behind it hung a large, gilt-framed mirror that did not, when I caught my reflection in it, fail to disappoint. In that, like all mirrors, it gave back startlingly little a sense of the worlds within worlds a single consciousness comprises, too dull and static a human surface to convey the incessant kaleidoscope within. Invigorated by my new surroundings, my brisk mountain walks, and the spirit of possibility that accompanies the advent of a new year, I'd been feeling in Suleymaniyah more attuned to life and richer in potential than I'd felt in a long time, maybe not even since that first summer after college with my girlfriend. In Suleymaniyah, unburdened by routine and inspired by my brother's apparent tranquility and contentment, I envisioned myself approaching a kind of bifurcation, a meaningful deviation that would steer my life closer to his and our Iraqi ancestry than ever before. Here was the future. Here was where one of the most important revolutions of my earthly tenure was taking place. And emboldened by the extra passport in my pocket, I wanted to witness it and play a part in its fruition. This is how I felt. But in the mirror on the other side of Sammy's new piano, I did not look like a man teeming with so much potential. On the contrary, in my 11-year-old jeans, a week's worth of stubble, and a fraying windbreaker from the gap, I looked rather more like the embodiment of a line I would later read, something about the metaphysical claustrophobia and bleak fate of being always one person. 
This is a problem, I suppose, that it is entirely up to our imaginations to solve. But then even someone who imagines for a living is forever bound by the ultimate constraint. She can hold her mirror up to whatever subject she chooses, at whatever angle she likes. She can even hold it such that she herself remains outside its frame, the better to de-narcissize the view. But there's no getting around the fact that she's always the one holding the mirror. And just because you can't see yourself in a reflection doesn't mean that no one can. Yeah, that was pretty, pretty relevant, I must say. <laughs> De-narcissize, was that word? It's a word in my head. Yeah. <laughs> that was nice. Um, I think we should move on to the to the last part. We follow the structure of the book to mm. now, actually, to some extent, and um, then we could say that something completely different uh, mm -hmm. occurs mm -hmm. by the end when Ezra is um, presenting his favorite music in a way, the mm -hmm. music he would bring to a distant island, mm -hmm. um, and then you construct this interview between an interviewer and the accomplished writer. And that's very interesting, I must say, to, <laughs> to, to, to read. And how did you work on, on that part of the book? Can you tell a little about it? Mm -hmm. I mentioned earlier that the first two parts I wrote more or less simultaneously. I would work on Alice's story for a few days or maybe a week or two, and then I would switch to a Mars story. It was very useful because sometimes you're in a different mood, and I would just switch to the one I felt in the, in the spirit of working on. And for a long time, I thought that would be the book. But then I realized that it really needed something else, one, in order to make it structurally asymmetrical, <laughs> but also I wanted it to end on a more playful note, and I wanted the opportunity to use Ezra to comment on fiction and what it can do. I wanted Ezra to have a different um, arena. I wanted to give him an opportunity to speak in his public guise. And, and I was listening to an actual program called Desert Island Discs. It's a cultural treasure in uh, the UK. My husband introduced me to it. I think it's still on every Sunday. And it's, um, the format is very simple. A famous person is invited on to talk about his or her life, but also to name the eight records that he or she would take on a desert island. And then also you choose a book that you would take in addition to the Bible or the Quran or the, um, uh, the Torah. And you also choose a, a luxury, which can be something like a bottle of wine that washes ashore every night at 6 p.m. or something a, bit, something a bit fantastical. So I love this program. I listen to it all the time. Now all of the episodes going back something like 70 years are... The show goes back, I think, 75 years. Many, many of the episodes going back many years. I don't know if all of them are online, but they are archived online. So you can, this is a gift to you all. If you aren't familiar with it, you can go home and find so many of these episodes, hours and hours of wonderful entertainment because it is really a brilliant program. Anyway, I, I loved the program. I, I was listening to it doing the ironing one day, and I thought I should give Ezra Blazer his own turn on desert island discs and this would give me the opportunity to have him say things that I want to say but through his voice and also it allowed me to write about music which I love I grew up singing and um, 
performing in musicals and I played the piano and the violin, not very well, but I still loved it. <laughs> and, um, and I love old music. And, and so it was a way to, to just have a bit of fun. It, it was the most fun that I had in writing the book, was writing the last section. And, um, and, and Ezra speaks about fiction. He speaks about what fiction can and can't do. He speaks about people who confuse autobiography with fiction, which is something that is, um, is close to his heart, but also is very relevant to, to this book. So, so it was just a lot of fun ending, ending with that, uh, that sort of simulation of an actual radio program that, mm. that um, I recommend. <laughs> Yeah, and it, it, it's it's fun and it's so nice because well, I guess what he says is is, is true for him, but he has every uh, opportunity to kind of show his public persona, mm -hmm. and it's a wonderful contrast, of course, between that and and the uh, soy milk chocolate uh, drinking uh, writer yes. in, in bed uh, <laughs> at the beginning of the book. Yes, yes. Uh, that's wonderful and. There's humor in this book linked to him not winning the Nobel Prize in literature, mm -hmm. and but by the by the end of the book, he's actually received it. Yes, we're not really. It's a small spoiler, but we learn in the interview that he has actually finally won the Nobel Prize that he's been coveting. And I have a very quick funny story to tell you that um, I've been asked most recently by a Polish journalist. Was I trying to? Was this an act of historical redress that I gave Ezra Blazer the Nobel Prize when Philip Roth never won it? And I pointed out to him that in order to give Ezra Blazer the Nobel Prize in 2010, I had to take it away from Mario Vargas Llosa, <laughs> <laughs> and no one has asked me if that was an act of historical redress. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I just I think the time's up, and I just want to say. Thank you so much uh, for, for coming and you. talking about the book. And thank so you, great. and thank you to my publisher, and also I'm so excited that the translator is here because we haven't met, and maybe we will now. Thank you. <laughs> 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 <And> thank you. <laughs>